Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We've got science to celebrate Davis Blissmouth! Octopus, baby, come on! There is a in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur blossoms? I'll have to put those here to test our faith. That damn lie, I, I saw them on my own eye! Did I accuse just... Drop sharp while I was away. We did it in illusions, man. None of it is true. I'm not insane. This is mass madness, you maniac. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. Welcome back to The Deep Share. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And tonight... I'm very honored to finally get to sit down with Phoenix Aurelius. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Andy. Uh, thanks for coming on. I'm glad we could finally work it out. And uh, we're going to have our friend Dan Unaki Dan joining us soon also. And that will be fun. But um, just to get us started, for those who may not be familiar with your work, let's get a little bit of background into how you got into the work that you do and what it's all about. Sure. So, yeah, I run a facility called the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, and although we do lots of things, one of my biggest passions is researching an art form called Spigeria, and it was created in the 15, you know, it started emerging about in the 1520s, but uh, most of the tenets were written down during the 1530s by a guy named Paracelsus, and um, he basically told alchemists of his day who already had a pretty poor reputation because there were so many shysters trying to just make a quick buck and sell some snake oil that instead of trying to transmute baser metals into gold, they should apply all of their alchemical knowledge and wisdom towards making medicines. And he created this really strong pharmacopoeia and medicinal style that eventually got completely bastardized, ripped off and turned into pharmaceutical medicines. But all of the original principles are very much so in line with nature and very tied in with spirituality and psychology. And um, it's, it's an actual laboratory tradition of being able to make medicines using alchemical principles and alchemical techniques and processes and labware. 
Um, so for me, it really fits us like critical need that we have with all of the crappy healthcare that we have in our country and really just around the world where it's more like death care than it is healthcare. So, um, yeah, so I research all of those things and how to be able to make them the, the very best and to see what types of medicinal merits and medical virtues, various substances from the past might have and split test how to make them properly and bring them into the light of standardization and modern science. Wow. That's pretty incredible work. It's fun. It sounds fun. And it also sounds, yeah, like you said, it's perfect for the timing because I think everybody's, you know, as Terrence McKenna would have put it, like the archaic revival is kind of here where we're looking back and realizing how, how well we were set up at some point to live in harmony with, with nature. Not to say that everything was at peace perfectly all the time, it wasn't right. necessarily utopia, but we were in line with nature. So when things got bad, we knew how to handle them, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, at least a lot <laughs> of the time. Yeah, it, it just depends on what time period <laughs> you might yeah. look at and what culture. So. so it started in the 1500s, you said. That's yeah. interesting. Do you think there was any sort of uh, primordial precursors that came before that period? Because, I mean, when you think about all these other mystical philosophies and traditions they stretch back forever and ever it seems goes further and further back the more we find out you know so alchemy actually has a long history just in the west Mm -hmm. um before before the 1400s starting at about uh, you know uh, 1000 ad or uh, you know ce i guess we could call it these days um and maybe even slightly earlier than that we start to see the arab moors introducing alchemy into southern Spain and they inherited that from the Greeks who had the library of Alexandria which largely got destroyed but some of the the text got translated into Arabic of course and so they had it for a while they got it from the Greeks who got it from the ancient Egyptians and so there's this long western heritage uh, historically speaking of the alchemical tradition and realistically the Arabs were really, really advanced with alchemy and astronomy and a number of other things. They were basically, they had their own type of um, renaissance, basically, in the area between 600 to 900 AD in what is now currently Iran. And it was kind of like the golden age of Islam in a certain regard. They had come up with so many amazing advancements to medicine and stuff, but their alchemical practice was not... It was, it was more philosophical, actually, than it was practical and used for, for medicine, although certain compounds had been um, kind of introduced into the pharmacopoeia. So it wasn't until Paracelsus got it, after it had already gone through Spain and France and gotten into Switzerland, where we begin to see Paracelsus uh, kind of on the scene and being able to utilize that, that knowledge and that wisdom. So it definitely goes back to ancient Egypt. We don't know if the Egyptians were maybe inspired by certain Mesopotamian things, you know, for instance, or, or what it is. We lose track of it there. Hmm. Okay. Dan, how you doing, man? uh, Good, man. Good. Nice to have you here with us. (laughs) Dan and uh, and Phoenix Aurelius. What's up, Phoenix? (laughs) Not much, man. How you doing? I'm, I'm from the rising from the ashes podcast. So, uh, 
That's what I heard. I, I was like, Phoenix rising from the ashes. I love your name. It goes dude. really well. Yeah, fits in perfectly. <laughs> yeah. I was going to uh, bring up, is there any Atlantean connections? A lot of people say that you know the Egyptians settled uh, Egypt after after the flood and after Atlantis sank. I know yeah, that's, that's uh, theoretical <laughs> or whatever. Well, yeah. I mean, we have the same problem anytime that we start taking a look at Iron Age and before the myths and the legends that come from that time period. And so as we keep going further and further back, we get these more mythological settings, you know, not to, not to disregard them in any way, shape or form, but we can't show definitively that something came from one thing, but that is definitely something very important. So Hermes Trismegistus, uh, the thrice great, he authored this singular tablet. It's only seven paragraphs long called uh, the Emerald Tablet of Hermes. And Within, I want to say maybe the past 20 or 30 years, there was another book that got authored that was allegedly channeled material called the uh, Emerald Tablets of Toth the Atlantean. Mm. And in there, um, basically what they would discuss is is that same concept that you had. It was that Toth, who became the Greek Hermes and the Roman Mercury, um, was one of the survivors of Atlantis who had traveled after the flood to uh, Egypt and helped to establish colonies in that area of the world and gave them, you know, mathematics and astronomy and sciences and art and language and all those other things. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So Mm -hmm. let's get into spagyrics and what it is exactly and what it's used for in this process. Or what kind of process is it? (laughs) So spagyria is cool. Its name actually describes what it is. It comes from two ancient Greek words. One is called spau, and then the other is called ayeros. And spau, ayeros, spayaros, or spagyria, when we turn it into a Latinized form. And basically what it means is to separate and to recombine. And there's actually a third kind of insinuated or hidden step in there that's to separate, perfect, and recombine. And the whole concept mm-hmm. of spagyria really says that everything, and this is this is uh, unique to Paracelsus, okay? Before Paracelsus' time, he inherited alchemical cosmology that was influenced by the Arabs, and Al-Jabir had come up with this theory that there is this polar nature to the universe that alchemically can be described as sulfur and mercury. And so sulfur is the masculine aspect, and mercury is the feminine aspect in this Jabirian kind of framework. Well, by the time Paracelsus gets a hold of that, he says, well, that doesn't really mirror nature because there's a third thing. If the spirit is what dissolves or is a menstruum and the sulfur is the medicinal essence, then where's the salt, the physical body, the corpus of the material? And so he elaborated on the entire corpus of alchemical theory and cosmology in his lifetime single-handedly by introducing that principle of salt. And now what he says is sulfur is masculine, mercury is androgynous, and salt is feminine. And so we use these three things, sulfur, meaning soul, mercury, meaning spirit, salt, meaning body, and not directly meaning what we would refer to as the periodic table of elements you know, sulfur, brimstone, metallic mercury, or sodium chloride. So these are philosophic or archetypal principles that everything has, and we can break them down and see them on holographic levels. So that's Whoa. that's kind of the basis of spagyria right there. 
it's kind of, yeah it sounds like the trifecta it sounds like the uh the father the son and the holy spirit yeah, right. the, trinity. the trinity yeah that's what I, uh I, I i've heard you talk about you use like irish mythology in uh in your whatever practices yeah. how does how, <laughs> how does that relate to the to the what irish gods does that represent well so for me irish druidry has just been a path that i've always been interested in very oh, okay. since i was really little the alchemical work and the irish mythology don't necessarily see eye to eye in that they come from entirely secular traditions um so you know, there was really not alchemy going on the way that we conceive of it today or the way that I practice it or the way that it even would have been practiced in the ancient world happening in Ireland um, until well after the Romanization, so um, which happened with Catholic monks. So with that being said, um, for me, it's, it's more of just a personal spiritual path of tying back my ancestry to the land. But to answer your question, the gods... In particular, that I work with are Gian Kesht, which means the swift one or the swift healer. He's uh, kind of the healer of the Tuatadanan. And then also his children, Miach and Armet. Um, Miach was amazing at healing King Nuda, um, had some amazing ability. It's, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the mythos that much, but there's this time when King Nuda gets damaged actually in a battle. I call him Nuada. Nuada, yeah, you just pronounce Nuda. Yeah, I, I, I can't pronounce it the way you do, but it's uh, fantastic <laughs> to hear you say it correctly. So, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah at any rate, um, he, he got his arm completely torn asunder by this guy named Strang. And what ends up happening is that Gian Kesh, the father of, of Miak, ends up healing the arm and creating this bionic silver, silver arm that works in all yeah. likeness to a regular arm. Miach decides, being a hotshot and young and lacking wisdom, that he's going to heal Nuada's arm and actually heal it. So using this magic spell of bone to bone and sinew to sinew and flesh to flesh, I bind you. And he takes his original hand from the battle and uses his magic to completely heal it. Well, Jin Kesh, his father, becomes so enraged about that because it was such a poor political move at that time that he ends up killing his own son. And from his son dying, his sister, then uh, Gian Kesh's daughter, ends up coming up, finding the grave, weeping on it. And from that, every medicinal herb started sprouting from the ground. And Mia, uh, Ermit, rather, gathers all of the herbs and writes down all of the things. So only she knows uh, all of the hidden properties of all of the herbs um, that are known in this time. Dan, did you notice that the woman has the knowledge? Yeah. that's a Uh, that's something that we've been paying attention to often they seem to be the wisdom yeah 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 even still we call them the wise women you know who work with herbs and things it's very much so steeped in the the occult and kind of witchy tradition that they know the herbs and they know the things and men not so much usually they're on the outside of that we are yeah. the shell. <laughs> uh, I, I was talking to Benjamin Balderson uh, recently. Are you familiar with him at all? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and he goes with the Norse mythology. So he was saying that uh, the Trinity was uh, uh, Loki, Thor, and Odin. 
So I was just wondering the comparison so that I could compare that in with the Norse mythology, you know, so I could kind of yeah, understand completely. because I thought Nuada too. I thought it was Lou that lost his arm. Am I thinking of a different? No, he was called Lou the long arm. Lou Lamfada would be his name. And he was a long arm who was able to cast out the eye of Balor. So um, oh. yeah, it was actually King Nuada who lost his arm in the, the battle against the Fyr Bullock to their adversary named Sreng. Yeah, that's so cool. It's, 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 and we all kind of know that these gods symbolize a, the same story or a similar story. So it is fun to kind of be able to yeah. Yeah, connect yeah, them across the globe. I had Freddie Silva on at one point talking about the Anunnaki in Scotland yeah. and Ireland. It's just like, oh my God, it makes so much sense when you think about it. And yeah. I was curious just to take it in a little bit of a different angle here. Are you um, familiar with like, or not, actually, let me take that. Let me take that again. <laughs> Would you consider something like ayahuasca, like an alchemical process of some kind? I was thinking about it earlier because it's like you have a, the root of one plant and then you have the leaves of it. I don't, I mean, maybe it's not, maybe it's just cooking, <laughs> well, <laughs> but you know, you're combining well, cooking, these two cooking very is different alchemy. Man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It yeah, is, exactly. Right? It's like it, it just depends on how strict you want to be about definitions is really okay. what it comes down to and how, how you're approaching it. If you are approaching it of uh, that alchemy is just mixing things, then anytime you mix anything, you're performing alchemy. <laughs> right, right. Um, realistically, ayahuasca, here's, here's where it gets kind of interesting and convoluted. That answer for me is that <laughs> the, making the brew itself although it can be approached alchemically does not require alchemy in order to make it per se. Mm -hmm. That being said, the brew itself when imbibed or ingested now produces a transfiguration of the soul of the persona. And so does it um, cause an alchemical process to unfold? Yes. But in the preparation, it doesn't take that. And that's, that's unique <laughs> because we put a lot of time and effort into preparations in order for them to be able to change consciousness and to extract the particular oh, yeah. aspects of consciousness out of the plants to elicit certain things. So when you find master teacher plants, you know, like psychedelic mushrooms, you know, psilocybe cubensis and azarescens, and, you know, any of your other hallucinogenic mushrooms, including Amnita muscaria and other things, or whether you're talking about, you know, ayahuasca and, and uh, you know, mimosa bark and, you know, chakruna, chelyponga, you know, whatever you're using, it's, it's amazing. It's just really cool and kind of a phenomenon that those things exist. Yeah, it's like all things being fractal in my mind it feels like, yeah, the, the psychedelic alchemical process is kind of what we've always been reading about. It may not have been done with psychedelics. Like, for instance, I, I, I can't remember who you were speaking to, but I, I heard you, Phoenix, talking about how like adrenochrome being like the easy way out. Whereas, yeah, they're not practice alchemists. They're not doing the work. That's not what these kinds of people are about. It's a little different, you know, it's, it's yeah. the easy way out. And I've kind of had to wrestle with that with myself with like psychedelics because I used to see it as like, yeah, why take the stairs or why climb the mountain when you could take the jetpack? But now it's like, ah, oh, man, but the process of getting there, you learn so much and you gain so much. Yeah. So it's such an interesting duality there, you know? 
Well, it's like those, it's like all the wise masters. They always advise us. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Mm. And so, you know, that's, that's where we get really caught up. I think in the modern days, like everything, and it's, it's probably just like an astronomical social cycle that will pass at some point because we'll get bored of it. But, you know, trying to get somewhere or having accomplished something past tense is kind of the bane of our existence. If we just focus <laughs> on like what the hell we're actually doing and enjoy it in the process, it, yeah, just that one little perspective shift changes so much. That's very Eastern. Yeah, it's yeah, very the, Buddhist almost like, you know, experience the now and don't worry about the past and don't worry about the future. Just stay where you are. And it, it, I feel like people see that as a cop out when they don't understand it properly. They think it's laziness or something. And it's such a Western, yeah. Western philosophy to, to that's embedded in so many of us, you know? Yeah. We're going to say that. The alchemical process sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden, too, how they separated the humans and then perfected them and then put them back into uh, yeah, regular society. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Interesting. Yeah. It creates. Yeah. Alchemy is cool because basically by any other name, you, people, people would be able to utilize the exact same science and write excellent music or understand the rotation of the stars really well or understand geometry all of those are just different manifestations of the same core archetypal language so i feel like you know realistically um people are already using alchemy all the time and when you get right down to it you can alchemically decrypt so to speak any story or you know movie or song or anything Mm. you can break it down you can begin to see that deep alchemical symbolism because realistically it pervades absolutely everything you know uh, Mm -hmm. i used to teach tons of classes you know about a decade ago and one of the things you get you know just like 30 or 40 people off the street not all being on the same page so to put them on the same page about alchemy it was like Let's, let's just talk about alchemy in terms of the transformation of energy. Okay. A very broad definition. It's like if energy is constantly changing form, transforming, and alchemy is the art and science of transformation, what is it that happens that isn't alchemical? Yeah. There's nothing outside of the, the realm, really. Yeah, exactly. It's, in fact, it's the name of the game. It's like as long as you understand <laughs> Yeah. how things transform and how to catalyze those transformations. Now you understand it and can kind of work with it. It's with a perfect tie consciously. Is that maybe right. what so-called like enlightenment really is? Is just like you breaking yourself down in the alchemical process. <laughs> I think so. You guys, either of you guys ever seen uh Jordorowsky's movie called the Holy mountain. I've no. heard about it. I've heard it's very, very weird. <laughs> It's okay. So if you've ever seen, but I'm into weird, it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. If you've ever seen like a clockwork orange or other things, it's like, it's one of those movies that's going to shock you and it's going to completely make you feel uncomfortable. But the, the whole concept of that movie is an alchemist. Like this guy gets found, he's in a total shit way. He's just a complete drunk and whatever. And an alchemist finds him or rather he finds an alchemist and goes through this process of transformation. And the film is very, very um, trippy, (laughs) for lack of a better term. 
but it is really well done. I, it was one of those ones where I had to watch it several times in order to really even grasp the, the full complexity of it. But uh, that show explains, or that movie explains in graphic image what it would take me novels and novels and novels or huge amounts of tomes to really mm -hmm. sum up. So um, yeah, I suggest the, the entire listener base take a look at that movie, but yeah. don't do it around kids. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, understanding alchemy and spagyrics and how everything works and uh as above so below and you're able to understand the process on this physical level how come how come we today not necessarily you but scientists and science hasn't like figured out like what the universe looks like or what the ocean is or what the earth is made out of why is there so much back and forth and debate about what it is it seems like if there's a science to it with alchemy we could figure out everything well you know in order to answer this we actually have to kind of go back to why alchemy was the proverbial baby that got thrown out with the bathwater in the first place and that's because its language was really limited even though it's absolutely brilliant to speak in archetypes, when I say the sulfur of gold, the mercury of gold, the salt of gold, and I limit that to all of the possibilities of talking about the constituents physiologically that can exist inside of gold. Now people with their chemistry were at a point, you know, in the late 16th and, and 17th centuries, coming to a point where they were beginning to see that actually there's probably more than that. There's more than just the four elements of fire, air, water, and earth. There's probably more than just the, the trio prima of sulfur, mercury, and salt. And they were lacking terms to be able to describe these very unique substances that they were able to repetitively make. And so they broke away from the philosophy with the, that terminology of sulfur, mercury, and salt, the four elements. And they started creating a periodic table of elements showing all of these different things. And it was born by necessity. In fact, the limitation, like the, the, the lab work had become so advanced that so many new things were being created actually, that the limitation of the language and the expression of the ideas needed to uh, break down. And so these two things separated basically, but I look at them in the same way that I look at the plant kingdom is that the soul has two levels to it, two aspects to it has the higher soul, which would be the essential oil and the volatile oils of the plant. And then it has its cruder extracts of the plant that are able to be pulled out and extracted through other means. It's not the essential oil. It's like, you know, the crude extract. So that we call the fixed sulfur. So there's volatile sulfur and fixed sulfur, the higher self and, and the innate personality. These types of things, you know, they, they needed to be separated so that we now can take a look at them together. I can say on a physiological level, this plant now has 87 different phytochemicals. And of those 87, when I extract it, I get these and these and these, while at the same time incorporating the archetypal theory and tying it back into spirit. So we haven't been at a deficiency uh, by having both of these sciences, it's just time to start blending them and merging them back together again. But just like everything, it had to separate in order for it to recombine. And those are natural cycles that you'll see all the time. The more you resist those 
types of changes that need to happen, the less conscious and the less aware the society becomes. It's always best to just allow things to happen and to play out and to understand what the broader scheme is going to look like. Alchemy had to go through an alchemical process. (laughs) Yeah. Go figure. Even it is not, you know. Yeah. That's uh, as above, so below, man. It's, it's, it's the fractal nature, right? It's it's this one archetypal thing that seems to just repeat endlessly. And if you just are aware of it, yeah, yeah, I I can see it in two different directions because I feel like I experienced that under psychedelics at one point where I witnessed the repet the repetitiveness the what is that repetitiveness? word repetitiveness. Yeah. Activity <laughs> of, of like reality and consciousness at like a very fast rate. And it was as if I understood what insanity was. I was like, okay, how can this become still? And then it just was. <laughs> and then <laughs> so it was like I saw that duality. And it's almost like there has to be something to to facilitate this experience we're having in order for the chaos of reality to settle down enough. And that must be an alchemical process. Yeah, it is. In fact, what you were just talking about, that settling down phase could sometimes be referred to a separation where you're either filtering a material or allowing it to precipitate Mm. um, or separating it in some way. It's like you have all that crazy noise and shit reaction happening, but eventually shit will settle down. And so like everything is an alchemical process happening just as long as you can see it, identify what it looks like in nature, see it, identify what it looks like in your own psyche. Then you can see it anywhere and everywhere because you understand the holographic thread and the archetypal signature throughout all of creation. Wow, man. So it's like the whole concept of alchemy is like, I'm obsessed with fractals and it's just like, it's yeah. eating itself. <laughs> it's yeah, great. Exactly. Oh man. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Snake fractals, Ouroboros. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> cycles so, and cycles. Yeah, man. And I, it's the, the more I become aware of it, it's, it's just, yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't remember who said it originally, but it's like, there's nothing more potent than an idea whose time has come. And alchemy historically works in these really long cycles where it's hot for several hundred years and then it kind of goes underground for a while. It's like any wavelength, right? It's rising, crescendo, still popular, but waning. And then it's like way underground, you know, not able to be used. Then it comes back up and it does those things. It happens, tends to be about every 400 years, um, at least if we trace it back to its known roots today we're at that point it's it's actually from you know the 1430s until now we're almost 600 years you know overdue for another alchemical renaissance of sorts so and i see it man when i first started doing this work nobody knew about it like literally you would have to scour the weirdest places to be able to find somebody as like old booksellers might know about it through you know really weird rare books that they have and then you'll have like pockets of Freemasons, Rosicrucians, et cetera, know about it because it's part of the Western Hermetic mystery traditions that are preserved in their schools. And aside from that, there's like, there's nobody else. So 
you know, now today you can hop on Instagram, type in Spageria, and there's like 60, 70, 80 businesses that you can follow. You know, it's crazy. It's nuts. Do you think the, uh, the parasite class uh, is going to try to like, I don't know, co-opt hijack the rejoining in some way as they, as they enjoy doing? <laughs> well, I mean, it would make sense that they try and use, you know, disinformation. That's what they've tried to do with alchemy for a long time. Demonize is, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Demonize it and, and provide disinformation saying that, Oh, it's all fake. It's blah, 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 but it helped create chemistry. And it's like, <laughs> bitch, it was chemistry. Like, you know, so well, I yeah, because chemistry, the word itself goes back to Kemet, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. So there you go. I mean, it's ancient hermeticism right there. Yeah, well, and I mean, they drew the same concepts and were doing the same thing. It was just that necessary schism that was split. And sadly, you know, so many people, and this was the same in Paracelsus's day, because you had to study alchemy if you were going to university at that that point in history. It was like Mm -hmm. one of the core curriculum that you need to be aware of and understand even to, you know, just, just the point that you can talk philosophically with your other hobnob, you know, doctors about it or whatever, but they built an institution of academia at that time in Renaissance Europe, that if you were outside of that, you were very much so looked down upon. And that was where Paracelsus was. Uh, He was fluent in Latin and could read and write Latin just fine, but he chose to write in German, the language of the people to make his ideas much more accessible. And I think that that's really what makes his work so popular over the next 150 years after his death and led to People like, you know, most people, when they when they hear about Paracelsus in a textbook, it's like he invented iatrochemistry, which is the basis of modern pharmaceutical medicine today. He also invented the field of toxicology. He also invented uh, medical anesthesia. He also invented, you know, all these things. They just talk about these singular things. But the fact of the matter was he was doing that in such a complete way with his theories and his approach and his his philosophy around medicine, that it was the whole package. Like he was healing syphilis with small amounts of mercury sulfide, which we know from the Indian Rasa Shastra tradition extends life almost indefinitely if used properly, if made properly. And same thing, we find little hints in the Taoist literature that they were doing the exact same thing, just thousands of years before the the Hindus even came around. And then we find the same traditions in the West happening completely independently, it seems, of any of those two cultures' informations happening several thousand years later. It just shows that these are natural evolutions of of thought and of mankind, and they just need the hundredth monkey kind of effect (laughs) in order to get popular. And they did that once with Paracelsus. They're doing that again right now. And it's kind of my own personal goal. Like if I had one thing that I could do before I died, it would be to evangelize Spigeria to such a point that people would begin to pay much more attention to it because there's been not a single modern issue that can be approached that I haven't been able to more thoroughly and accurately approach in my research studies than the hundreds of doctors that many of my research clients have been to before they came to me. And 
when you just change the framework and the cosmology that you look at things at and include subtle frequencies of the soul, you know, your thoughts, your emotions, those would be subtle frequencies. I can't dissect them physically on a table and the aspects of the soul too, the innate personality and the, the meaning uh, and the volition of what a person wants to do in life and, and how well they feel that they have the resources to be able to do these things. When we take that into consideration, approaching medicine is a whole lot more holistic and a whole lot easier. And in my experience, the healing goes by so much faster and in a much more integrated way. It's not quite so dissociated, like take two of these pill, pills, put no effort into it. And let's see if the symptoms go away. It's this holistic approach to evolving the entire nature, the entire frequency of that individual so that they're not susceptible to that type of disease in the first place from vibrational level. So it's, it seems so fitting that this older tradition, this more shunned tradition, the demonized way has you, the observer as a participant in your own growth yeah. as you, the mover, you know, and I feel like that has not only been, you know, pushed away and, and not talked about enough and, and, but it's also definitely been made to be feared almost because the idea in there is that, or it gets confused as you are God. Now you're your own God. That means you're, you're uh, taking the blasphemy. power away. But yeah. Blasphemy and all that. And I know that at some point you kind of just have to let people believe what they want to believe. And that's sure. totally fair. But to those on the, on the brink, it's like, you know, you got to kind of, how do we bring them over to that side and say, Hey, listen, you're seeing some of these symbols the wrong way. You're buying into a lot of fear. You got Dan and I talk about this kind of thing all the time when it comes to the further back in time you go, a lot of our contemporary dualities seem to vanish. And it's like the key yeah. is in the symbolism. It's in the language. It's in the letters. It's how these yeah. things came about to begin with. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, totally, man. And uh, yeah, so just a little bit more on that, I guess. Like, how, how, do we, um, how do we help people to kind of throw off the fear? And if they're interested in the symbolism, even if they're afraid and they're saying it's it's all evil. How do we kind of, what, what is a good example to show people that the symbolism of the ancients is not like we've come to a point where people are afraid to worship nature because they think it's antichrist. And that is, <laughs> that's a really sad state of affairs. <laughs> Meanwhile, these same people are saying yeah. we're going to really say it's sad, sad state of affairs right now. So it's like, how, Oh man, it's the crossing the barrier must be an alchemical process, right? To get yeah, seriously, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I refer back to filtration. Some people make it through the filter paper and some people don't, but, um, you know, it's like this, there really isn't, let's just fundamentally approach this, like from principles that we can agree upon and just use logic. If God is, you know, the, the Christian notion of God or Islamic, Abrahamic, we'll call it notion of God is real. God creates Satan. Why? Why does God allow for that experience to exist? It has to have some purpose in the scheme of creation, if that scheme of creation and that narrative is true. In which case, I would just simply ask 
people who are listening with closed mind or who think that all ancient knowledge that did not originate after the advent of Christianity in the Roman Empire is evil in some way is that it must also have a place if it's evil or if it's corresponding to Satan. If God continues to allow Satan to exist, then there must be some importance to that. And finding that is really important. And in fact, for me, if that narrative was true, then it makes sense that we have free choice because then by our own volition, we can come to choose the light or come to choose the dark. And we get choice of that. We get to choose that. And there's an importance in being able to have that, that freedom of choice, in which case that should be the entire importance of Christianity within that narrative is just choice. You have choice, you have free will. And if you want to live with God, great. If you want to live with Satan, then that's also great. So people who are in that very fundamental kind of religious framework, though, usually have a hard time opening up to any sort of alternative information if it doesn't fit that strong paradigm. So really, instead of trying to address them, I would just say, look, symbols have always been around for ages because in a symbol, like a picture is worth a thousand words, you can say so much and encrypt so much meaning into small symbols that they can speak perennially and they can speak through cultures. They are able to go throughout the, the barrier of cultures and speak to everyone in such a clear and concise way. And if you think that just because one particular group has decided to within a hundred year or 200 year time span or whatever, co-opt a perennial symbol to and ascribe it a particular meaning that they identify with, and therefore, every time you see that same symbol, like an upside down star, now it's associated with Satanism, for instance. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it doesn't work like that. Mm. You have to read it within the context. It's like if I see the word with, okay, I need to see what the context of that word is with the words, the subject and the pronouns and the predicates before it the prepositions and and any sort of object or indirect object in order to understand what that thing was with, in order to understand the symbol or that word in the proper context, you have to understand that context. And it's just like, you know, Jesus would have said, seek and ye shall find. Mm. And if you're looking for the right answers and the light side of things, that's exactly what you're going to find. If you're focusing on the negative and only hold that side of it, that's also what mm. you're going to find from that perspective. So, mm. so it's a it's an interesting dichotomy to desire to like. It's like the the asteroids come in and you want to tell people, but then you want to just be at peace while it's ending. <laughs> well, see, and and realistically especially if that was the narrative fuck yeah that's exactly what you want to do you know old hands yeah trying to tell the people that aren't aware that there's an asteroid coming even though probably it's all over the place people are chattering about it everywhere but they want to believe that it's not happening because it makes them feel better for whatever reason you know bless their hearts but i like this analogy I, I would so much rather be in a position. It's like, listen, if you have a question you want to ask from a place of honesty and earnesty, I'll tell you anything, any bit of knowledge that I have completely. 
However, if I have to try and tell you and make a sell, like I'm some used car salesman to get you to believe something that is clearly factual, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, I'm not going to put forth that effort. I'm not getting paid for it. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Dan, you got, you got something? Yeah. Uh, earlier when you were talking to, uh, about the alchemy and, and medicine and, and everything, I was wondering if, if, astrology has any part in making medicine more potent? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is yes. Historically, in the Western tradition, there are lots of different ways that this has gone on, but it kind of comes down to people now within the Rosicrucian. You have to understand that the form of spagyria and the form of alchemy that we have now has been held and preserved for modern people primarily by the Rosicrucians. The Rosicrucians took their entire philosophy and cosmology in the 1600s and based it largely on Paracelsian principles and terminology. So all of the degrees and everything are all based around sulfur, mercury, and salt. They greet you upon the triangle. There, there's like all of this type mm. of uh, alchemical philosophy. Satan. Their degrees. Yeah. Satan. <laughs> yeah, it's funny when people, you know, <laughs> you, you can read into anything you want. Okay, sure. This is, this is a pyramid with the all-seeing eye. Sure, whatever. Okay, that, that's great. And this happened once before in the 1980s. It's called the Satanic Panic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people like myself who have been involved with paganism know about this really well because we get lump sum anytime, anytime people are like, oh, it's the devil, like pagan, boom, all of a sudden the spotlight goes on us. They're like, look at you, you're dancing naked. <laughs> look at you, you're drinking mead. What the hell? <laughs> and it's like, must be evil. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Not us. Um, you can look <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> We're pretty What's alchemy, much dark sorcery or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it gets all these really weird connotations. Now, granted, in the past, there have been some really interesting individuals like Dr. John D, who mm -hmm. had used alchemy and were also using Enochian magic and, you know, summoning demons and other things. Um, Again, they're doing it from the perspective of utilizing nature and these demons that God allows to be around and commanding them as if they were slaves, basically, in order to do your bidding. And it's even said within the branches of Solomonic magic, the King Solomon of, you know, the Bible, the famous King Solomon, you know, um, that he also used Solomonic magic in order to build the temple of Jerusalem. With and the ring yeah the ring of solomon exactly and you know there are within the the grimoires uh grimoire tradition of the west we have solomonic magic you have the greater keys and the lesser keys of solomon and those are worked with by a lot of people today even though they were written many hundreds possibly even thousands of years after the authentic uh historical king solomon still that's the kind of where they they claim their lineage or whatever so you know all of it is not as scary as people think. There are definitively dark witches. There are definitively dark people that are doing very self-serving and nefarious deeds. There are groups of billionaires that are using magical principles. There are, okay, but those are actually the minority of people. The majority of people are using magic to help things like increase the love in, in their life or, you know, basic, basic simple shit, like everyday shit. And in my perspective, it is the right 
and the responsibility of people to be able to utilize not only their seen and physical forces, but also their unseen and more spiritual and psychic forces to give themselves and nature every advantage possible. And for me, that's the practical aspect of, of magic for me and why it's been interwoven into my own personal path and my own spiritual path. Mm-hmm. But I don't have that much interest, to be perfectly honest, in theurgical work and the commanding of demons and Enochian calls and other things like that. Like that, <laughs> all of that ceremonial style magic doesn't light me up quite the same way as natural magic does. And being able to support ecosystems and living things and connect with animals and, yeah. and nature and plants and stuff. That's my own, you know, personal vein. Yes. And uh, I, I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier, and you were talking about how you were using the planets to figure out uh, symptoms that you were having or people, yeah. other people were having. You're able to use the planets and their locations to figure out that they're getting it at the certain time of day and it was responding to certain planetary things going on. I, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a little confusing to me. So I was wondering if kind yeah, of, let me cycle back into that, bro. That's a, that's a good thing. So within spagyric cosmology, there are five causes of disease. And one of those is called ancestrale, means cause of disease due to the stars. And the idea uh. is, is that at any given time, when you are born, all of the positions of the planets and the constellations around them, from our perspective here on earth, specifically from your perspective where you were born, is able to be seen in this very particular array that can be charted out. And uh, there's lots of different ways of using astrology. We use what's called true sidereal astrology, mm-hmm. the dimensions for which were created by Athen Ch- uh, Chimenti of MasteringTheZodiac.com. And basically it maps out an astrological map of the sky, the way that it actually is with 13 constellations and not all of the constellations are a perfect 30 degrees. Some of them are much larger in the sky and some of them are much smaller in the sky. And so the true sidereal chart actually shows those actual dimensions as best as possible, almost near to what the International Astronomical Union would um, the, the difference for any technical users who might be listening, uh, technical practitioners or astronomers, is that where one constellation ends and another begins, typically if a planet is between that area, that would be said to be void of course. With astrology, you can't just tell somebody that they were born with the planet Mars void of course between say Leo and Virgo. It has to be you know some sort of degree in order to be able to chart out what that personality looks like or what the medical interpretation of that is. So what we do is we take the halfway point of the beginning of one constellation and the end of another, and we draw that point halfway, and that's where the cusp is for the actual astrological uh, interpretation. Then we basically say that three degrees on either side of that should be considered a blend of both energies. So that area that astronomically would be void of course, we don't read, we just kind of read it as a blend of both, in this case, Leo and Virgo traits um, right there in those, those windows. But aside from that, it's perfectly astronomically correct. And so what that does is that it makes a snapshot of electromagnetism because all of the planets have gravitational force and electro. Well, 
at least by our modern reckoning. Okay, they have gravitational force, they have electromagnetic force, they have some of the planets have magnetospheric influences. And as they come in certain proximity to us, they can block out light from other constellations, or they can reflect light from the sun back onto us in various ways. And that creates an entire electromagnetic thumbprint or fingerprint, if you will, basically of what is ideal for you. What is your most ideal astral influence? And it's where things were at the second you took your very first breath. So what's important about that is that at any given time, those planets can move, which they always do, and the, the stars move too. And in relationship to where they were at when you were born, now if they're in another place, they, they too are just playing with frequency, okay? It's just harmonic frequencies. And when we get, say, at a trine, now we're working with different waves that might, say, cancel out the other waveform. And that's what ends up happening is that electromagnetically, certain aspects of your body, and we know this because we can test the conductivity of the various uh, meridians in the body and their lacking electrical impulse that correspond to those planetary and or constellational frequencies. And so we can see that there's a direct relationship between the cosmos and the energy body of the human individual, especially their etheric body with their meridians. And in the East, you could go so far as to point out all the points of the Nadis. So um, with properly crafted medical astrology using the right form of astrology, we've been able to, with 100% accuracy, identify what is causing those issues from an astral perspective to be able to understand that and put that on paper for the first time in human history, as well as beginning to understand how to completely eliminate those causes of disease. And what's interesting, again, with 100% accuracy is that we're not only able to identify them, but we're able to utilize the SE5 and astronomical uh, broadcasts through the quantum scalar technology that we have to completely eliminate that imbalance. And when we do that, that person's disease or condition that they were working with that we identified was due to Enzastrale just suddenly disappears. So there's a strong correlation such to the degree with 100% accuracy over hundreds of people, we can say that there is a strong correlation to the point of almost causation. And I don't, I don't know what else I need to do in order to show causation, but that's the ultimate goal. So, so if the planets are, are affecting our personality based on their vibration and their signals that they're sen sending... Do, do do earthly things also have an effect on our vibration and our signal such as oh, sure 5g towers or microwave ovens or all of it so anything <laughs> i mean you know i recently on my own podcast i just interviewed dr true ott he's got a crazy yeah. dr true ott um, he, we were talking about harmonic resonance because he wrote this awesome paper by that same name that basically showed how to, by using physical equations and principles that already exist, be able to convert the molecular weight and or atomic weight of anything through an algorithmic mathematical expression into a frequency, and then how to be able to, using musical frequencies, cut down or increase the octave simply by dividing by two. Um, so that was really interesting because that really points to, in the strongest science that I've ever seen, 
that everything that we see is vibration. When you're eating all of these minerals and stuff, the reason why they're important to us is not so much because they're physical minerals, but because that is the most condensed form of that vibration that we can see and interact with. It's a lower octave of a, a vibration that we're able to interact with as a multidimensional vibrational being. And when we start to see <clears throat> the universe as vibration and not just as some hippy dippy loose metaphysical term, but really as something practical that we can interact with and experiment with using various Hertz frequencies, just on the small perspective that we can see and hear in that electromagnetic spectrum, we can begin to see some absolutely stellar things happening with health and wellness, just like Royal Rife was doing. Um, and with a wide number of other things, including consciousness. And the truth of the matter is the military technology has already knows this. There are tons of ultrasonic weapons and subsonic weapons and other things like this, where by any other name, that's what we're using is electromagnetics. We're using frequencies, Hertz frequencies, things that can be measured as Hertz in order to impact consciousness, in order to impact wellness, everything. It's, it's important. There's there's a theory out there. I, I'm going to butcher it unless I read it, but it's something to do with the Sumerian Kings list actually being like allegorical for some sort of frequency setup or, or hmm. uh, let me, I'd like to pull that up because I think you'd find it interesting if you haven't heard of yeah. it. Um, Dan, ask something. I'm going to look this up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fuck, man. I don't know. Dude, that, it just seems so <laughs> it's uh, uh, amazing to me that, you know, because for so long we've been told that astrology is stupid or or, you know, it's it doesn't really tell you anything, but it really seems like the planets and everything in their orientation really does affect everything that happens to us on this planet and and by understanding that i could because a lot of the ancients were all astrologers right they're always yes. watching the fucking stars so it's almost like they were prophetic and they knew what was coming because they were able to observe the planets and, and they knew yeah they are able to calculate it based on that that's the most important thing. That's actually the secret of the Druids. Realistically, we have in all of the resist or all of the existing remnants of Irish Bardic literature and poetry. We see that the Druids are oftentimes looking at the sky. Like this, another Druid will come and approach this Druid and interrupts him, and it always says like he was looking at the sky. The reason is, and th this is what I think, um, and th there's actually a, a pretty substantial amount of evidence to this uh, with guys like Anthony Murphy and other things where all of the megalithic structures littered throughout Ireland and the British Isles are actually aligned so that they would not only understand astronomical, like general astronomical cycles, like uh, lining up to say the sunset or sunrise on winter solstice or summer solstice. Okay. Those, that's just like, that's the tuning that they needed to be at. That's not the purpose of that thing. The purpose is, and it's usually elaborated in lots of different swirls and other things, 
is what cycle they were watching. Some of them are lunar calculators. Some mm. of them are Venusian calculators. Some of them are Saturnian calculators. And they all correspond to different uh, archetypes that those planets correspond to. So you might be able to say like all of these medicines that correspond to Venus should ideally be made during the time when we look to this stone uh. and Venus can be seen right above it. And then they can go out, harvest it, make it. And that's when it has its ideal astral presence and ideal astral potency and medicine to it. Wow. So I think that most people in the very ancient world, we would even call this the monolithic world, were attuned to the frequency of the stars because they were uh, mostly not sheltered from it. Okay, when you're out underneath the stars, you're infinitely more susceptible than when you have created a space and a geometry all of your own, like a house or a dwelling, the way that we think of it today, oh, when you're in huts yeah. and stuff, those stars, they, their light penetrates. And if you can see their light, then of course the frequency is hitting you. Of course it's impacting mm. you. Of course it's interacting with you, even when you can't see it. But when you can see it, then you're, you're, you know for a fact that that's what's happening. So all of these stars make a huge impact on different aspects of our psyche. And this is why the Greeks, you know, not even that long ago, three to 5,000 years ago, were showing us that every different constellation actually is personified by a god or a goddess and their, their tales and their stories because it shows how it fits into the human psyche and how these archetypes work within us. And if they're part of our psyche, because the universe is holographic and fractal, our psyche meaning soul, sukha is ancient Greek for soul. That's our word for psyche. If that's, you know, if it's holographic and fractal, then those very same principles live inside of our body. And so it's said that Aries governs the head and Taurus, the ears, nose, and throat and Gemini, the trachea and the lungs and the arms and so on and so forth, all the way down like through the chakras and the feet. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's really fascinating, but, and you know, the <laughs> traditional stance on it and the historical stance on it, I have found some rather large discrepancies. I'd say like probably 70 to 80% of the historical data is real and good and accurate and the traditional info, but we're finding that there are some discrepancies that can't repetitively be shown, uh, repetitively be shown. So uh, through studies, through clinical practice and stuff. And so I have taken it upon myself to amend those as the studies would suggest that we need to amend them and try and create a working system for today. Uh, of course, you know, between the Renaissance and today, we have several more planets, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Uh, we also have many more uh, stars that we have officially named and have uh, database records for in the IAU and things like that. And so it just needs to be brought up to speed. We need to bring it into the light of the modern world and stop shunning away from the concept of frequencies impacting our wellness. Every other area of science and mathematics has updated to Einsteinian physics and relativity, except for the medical realm, except for medical science. So, and they're they're kind wow. of trying to do away with the scientific method. It seems the one that you literally just described that you're in undergoing right now, trying to suss that out, it's yeah. it's falling apart. Uh, so, talking about the druids, uh, I wanted to ask you about this because um, I'm from New England. I live in Massachusetts, and there's a number of like old 
relics around this area that when I've read about them, they sound very druidic. And I'm thinking about that they were probably here at one point. And I was curious if I went to these places, would there be certain indicators that I could look for to, to really tell if this was some old pilgrim thing, or if it was actually a druidic temple of some kind at one point? Yeah. I mean, you, you might need to get slightly scientific because lots of centuries could have passed and there could have been a lot of geological change, but Hmm. Druids always worshipped in a grove, meaning that there had to be hmm. a near perfect circle of trees. And the harder the wood, especially oak, was the most revered, you would typically see those on or around any particular site. Um, and also hmm. with that, you would also see rock structures, um, usually megalithic, not just monolithic, but megalithic structures, meaning lots and lots of rocks, really big. Um, or entombments. And um, that's not, there are a couple of cases in New England where the case has been made that these could have been Celtic peoples. It's entirely conceivable mm -hmm. because they, <laughs> we know based on some of the Irish tales that one of the Irish saints actually made it as far as, far as Greenland and could have made it. He, there's another island even west of Greenland, he says, that is huge and expansive and all these things, they think that he may have actually been talking about North America, especially uh, Nova Scotia type area. And we do know that the Vikings contemporaneous to, or maybe just a, a hundred, 200 years later, also made it to Finland is what they called it in Nova Scotia area. So it, it's entirely conceivable uh, there, there is also a lot of conspiracy talk and some, some well-pointed out thoughts that Druids and uh, very early Scots and Irish people actually made it into the Appalachian Mountains as well, long before the Irish diaspora or, or uh, the 18th century. So, oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, it's entirely conceivable. To be perfectly honest with you, they were making it around very huge distances by skirting around in these little carracks. Um, so, yeah, would have been scary. But if you were doing it with a, a purpose, you know, then it. Or a fleeing I just, I just saw perhaps. I just saw an article the other day that said that Leif Erikson was here in uh, in America in like at one thousand around one thousand A.D. Right. Yeah, it, it entirely, yeah. entirely plausible. Yeah, so that blows Columbus out the door. Yeah, oh yeah, Columbus 14, has been off the map for a long time. He's a like, <laughs> like 500 years before that, you know? Yeah. And I mean, and then, and then even before that, you had Native Americans. So, I mean, <laughs> and Lord let's not forget about them. Yeah, so, exactly. Or the infamous whatever Tartaria, who knows what's going yeah, on with that. Exactly. There, there's tons of, how shall we say, speculative history. There is some good evidence. Nothing's been able to be proven, of course, uh, at, at least at the present moment, except for the Vikings establishing a Viking community in Finland, in Nova Scotia, long before Columbus. They did prove that. There's archaeological digs that show that. But uh, aside from that, everything else is somewhat speculative, really. So this is a little offhand. I was curious if you've heard of the work of Michael A. Hoffman, 
the writer. He wrote, he's very conspiratorial and he's written for 20 plus years. He runs revisionisthistory.org and he's been silenced, discredited, uh, labeled a, a Holocaust denier, all that when he's not, he's just trying to investigate history. But he has a, a notion given to him by a man named James Shelby Downard, who was, who's long gone now, this idea of revelation of method if you're familiar with that term or not, but they talk, he talks about an alchemical processing of the masses. And I wasn't sure if you were familiar with any of that. I, if not, that's fine. But sure. I just, yeah. um, so I can speak to it from my own perspective. I'm not sure. familiar with Michael A. Hoffman's thing, but yes, absolutely. So at a certain point, when you understand how to work with various different types of materials and frequencies, and you translate this into more abstract things, the very same processes uh, just have to occur in order to transform larger things. What's true is that there are, you know, you, you can call it lots of different forces. We can call it the Archaeus, which is what Paracelsus called it. We can call it the lower astral. We can call it the collective unconscious. We can call it any of these things. But basically, there is a force that all humans are tapping their thought from, for the most part, because most of them are not self-realized or individualized enough to be creating new forms in this realm. So they're drawing from it. They're kind of in, in a training ground, so to speak. But it's very easy if you understand the rules of how this works to be able to manipulate it in order to change the, the thought grid, uh, would be another term of it, of the planet, and thereby actually influence humans pretty directly. By, because as we think, that's how we live. You have to, you know, even if you wanted to like walk across the room, actually there's a small, quick neurological process where you have to be able to visualize yourself doing it first in order to actually do it. And so, by being able to block certain pathways or frequencies of thought from the general people, it's kind of like putting up a cattle fence and saying, well, don't actually go here. Now, if the cattle get pissed that they're corralled, they can knock those things over really easy and tread into any pastures that they want. But typically the cows don't want to do that because they like the ranchers and the ranchers are nice to them. They only harvest as many of them as they need. And the peace out, my hey, man. Thanks, Dan. Take care, man. See you soon. <laughs> and so. Oh, say my bye, Dan. <laughs> yeah. My man's on mute. He's like, waving. He's, on mute. He's saying bye. <laughs> I got to bounce. <laughs> All right, brother. All right, later, Good to Dan. have you, man. Bye. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you guys uh, having me on and joining you. Uh, Rising from very, the Ashes podcast. Check it out. Great information here. Uh, this is going to be a great episode. I already know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's going to open up, I hope, a lot of eyes to, you know, more things than just everything Satan. And, yeah, you know, I, 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 think, I hope so. I, hope I think so. that's kind of the aspect we're trying to go for is not everything is always fucking evil and the devil some it things sure have other meaning and, and you know if, if pe once people realize it maybe it can change perception and then in tune change all of us yeah for the better hell yeah dan thanks so, brother thank you talk to you soon man thanks dan okay
Go ahead. Yes. So yeah, uh, basically by changing that thought form, you can change and, and corral people pretty easily. And it just follows the exact same processes. So everybody talks about like manufacturing a crisis. All transformation begins with crisis. And in alchemy, we, that's the alchemical process of calcination where we apply fire to a material and burn it, put it under heat is another term so that it starts to excite. And as it excites, now you can guide it into the next phase once, once that process is finished, which is extracting the, the necessary information or the necessary data out of the ash that comes from burning a material. But what that looks like psychologically is releasing emotion. Now, what dark people end up doing, and I could go on and on and on with this whole social alchemy uh, formula. And in fact, you know, maybe that can make another good follow-up episode if your listeners sure. are interested. But basically those who are in the know of this process are able to utilize it in order to negatively restrict other people from going into these other forms of thought and ideas. Because right now it's really sad to me that we're two or 300 years after the, the Declaration of Independence has been written and we haven't come up with a more perfect idea of government. Like we're, yeah. we're just really lazy. You know, if we were to put any amount of effort into thinking about these things, we can perfect this and or make it more perfect. Right. Which is what mm. the declaration wanted to do is to make it a more perfect nation. And we, we constantly want to be on that scale of evolution where we're constantly trying to evolve. But what's necessary and what's true is that when social things end up stimulating a crisis on a social level, the entire community evolves. And if you know how to steer the emotional energy, then you can evolve it in your favor if other people aren't aware that that's the name of the game. So from my perspective, it's not that there are evil people out there. It's that there are unconscious people out there who are allowing themselves to be basically predated upon and corralled and moved and have their energy emotionally and, and, and in the realm of thoughts harvested and predated upon because they don't know how to play the game. That's right. really the thing. Once you understand it, now you can take control of your own personal evolution. And that typically involves shutting yourself off to very select forms of media. It, it involves shutting yourself off from outside influence so that you can hear the rhythm and the pulse of your own beat and work and, and, and really transform that. And if enough people were to do that, you know, it wouldn't even, there wouldn't even be enough people for the mainstream to corral to make that big of a difference. I think we're starting to actually see that over the past five years, I've seen consciousness kind of explode, but it's still in a relatively early phase. Give it another 20 years, 50 years, hundred years, something like that. And the process will be even more intense and more accentuated. Mm, so hopefully it'll, yeah. maybe it'll be exponential. Maybe it'll be 10 years. Who knows? <laughs> you know, the, usually things like that are because like, like I said, it's like that hundredth monkey thing. Once there's mm. a critical tipping point, now suddenly everybody just knows it. They, it's just an inherent feeling and, a, and an accepted truth. They don't even have to have heard it from somewhere. It's just like in that thought grid so much, that that's where they're drawing their power. So if enough people take accountability, you know, Master Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in the 1970s, who taught transcendental meditation, he talks in his books on this, how just one person practicing transcendental meditation can impact a five mile radius 
Why? Because that's how much the, the depth of transcendental style meditation creates such a depth of frequency that it can interact. And, you know, cause all of us have that God form, whatever you want to call it, you know, that source of all of creation, that resonance capacity within us mm. and just one person holding it, it resonates. And each of the rest of us who have that within us, it's just like if I hit this tuning fork and sound it over here and have the same tuning fork over here, this one will start to resonate through the principles of harmonic resonance. So, you know, I really strongly think that people just need to start taking accountability for the entirety of their multidimensional being, not just their physicality and start to see how things shift um, because that's, that's really the name of the game. If you're not using, if you're not playing the game, somebody's going to play it for you and you're right. going to be in the pond. So what about this aspect? Um, they, some people suggest, and maybe this is the more conspiratorial side of it, that uh, they have to tell us what they're doing in whatever way they want. Maybe we don't understand it, but they have to tell us because of karma. I've heard this many times, but I've also read the gateway process document and read Robert Monroe's work on binaural beats and all that and astral travel. And maybe this is just his personal perspective. I've been asking people this, but he suggests in his work that karma can just be obliterated. That's, that's nothing. That's an, that's another thing that's trying to hold us down and, and keep us in line or, you know, a, what do you think about that? Cause I mean, karma is such an important aspect of, of philosophy in my opinion i don't think you can just throw it out the window as they're suggesting well i have a couple of different ways that i can answer this i'll start off by answering this from the magical perspective there are entire schools of training where especially within dark magic works where you skirt all of the karma that you build in this life lifetime and accrue it for a future lifetime so that you can attain your selfish goals, whatever it is that you want to in this lifetime. So you could do really terrible things and not have it pay off now. So it's basically just like a credit karma system, quite literally. Interesting. Um, that being said, you can never permanently shuck any responsibility. Karma literally in the Sanskrit just means doing. Mm. You can't, you can't get away from action. Right. You sleep, there's a reaction to that action. You breathe, there's a reaction to that action. There's a reaction and an action to everything. And so you can't get away from the doing. You can't get away from the interaction with others. You're building karma with every relationship, no matter how good or how bad. And there's no such thing really as good or bad. That is the Maya. That is the illusion yes. to the cosmic dance of Lila right? As we talk about it within the Hindu concept. So I think that what people are missing, oftentimes the conspiratorial crowd, which is interesting because the majority of my business has actually come to my work through what they would consider to be like conspiracy websites and podcasts and stuff like that. It's very similar to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But I think that oftentimes they get caught up in the Maya of things in the illusion and are very quick to polarize and to point fingers at who is an aggressor and who is not an aggressor. If you were a billionaire, and I, I do this meditation a lot to develop compassion. If you were a billionaire or a trillionaire, let's say on this planet, 
and you knew that you had the resources if you cleverly invested in the right things to steer humanity in a way where even though it doesn't want to take accountability for itself you could help it be less destructive against itself but that will hurt many but it's also going to be the best thing in the long run like thinning out the herd for the benefit of the herd is that not what you would do mm. see the road to hell is paved with good intentions 100% of the time and so you really don't know how evil something is until you're seeing it from the perspective of the person perpetrating it who probably thinks that they're doing good there is a small portion of the population very small portion of the population that does otherwise that does evil dirty deeds because that's what they want and they they are wholeheartedly devoted to that for one reason or another some of them are just driven by entities and others are are you know really psychologically kind of fucked in a way that that's where they derive their their sense of pleasure probably even, from a lineage rife with this behavior over and over and over precisely again, that's usually know? what ends narcissism up narcissism is handed down yeah trauma begets more trauma <laughs> absolutely so, got to work so towards breaking those generational curses now exactly so it's not that the people that are at the top that are doing things aren't doing bad things from the perspective of the ordinary everyday joe absolutely they are but they're also doing the best with what they have and the way that they see things from their perspective to fix the situation as best as possible what we need is infinitely better communication and actually at the heart of it what we need is infinitely better accountability if people could be more accountable for their own lives and the lives of other people around them then we wouldn't need to have quite so much government or dictatorial force forcing us corralling us moving us in these very particular ways we would be able to take accountability for what works for us in our particular areas and circumstances ask for help when we need it provide help to others when we can spare it and like it it works very organically i've seen it many times okay it's just something that on the whole people need to get real about and they need to i think we need to have a framework of what does it mean to be human in the 21st century if we could actually answer and provide principles and key points that are collectively agreed upon by you know small groups of people or even larger cultures of people then we would actually begin to see the type of world that we want to live in instead we are focusing most of our energy collectively speaking on noticing the division and how poorly other people are governing us while we are not in any way shape or form taking all of the steps necessary to govern our own lives because that starts on the level of our thoughts and then the level of our emotions and then trickles down into the physical body So when people are like I can govern myself but then they say really irresponsible shit right after that um yeah. it's like <laughs> I don't think that you are in control of your own thoughts right now I wouldn't trust you with my community <laughs> you know um yeah. <laughs> That's kind of yeah. where we need to be I agree I agree well this has been a real honor man and I would absolutely love a follow up that we can dive way into a particular topic absolutely man Uh, please well, tell my listeners where they can find you. Sure. Thank you so much for that opportunity. Uh, anybody who's interested in following my work, you can go to my uh, website at phoenixaurelius.org. It's just my first name, last name.org. 
Uh, from there, you will see a huge website. We have like, uh, if you're brand new to the website or don't know anything about Alchemy or Spagiria or what I do, Noriana, my partner and co-owner of the Research Academy has posted up some videos of like where to start. Those are up on the homepage. You can just click there, watch those videos, do things. But basically, um, I'm kind of like a Patreon, but we don't have to have that same style. So you'll notice when you go to my store, if you want to buy anything, it says fund this research now. So basically all of your purchases help to fund the research that I'm doing on understanding the plants through alchemical framework and linking that up with modern chemical framework, performing what we call intrinsic data field analysis, which is a forward thinking quantum scalar form of uh, inter, uh, interacting with and, and inquiring about various data um, and running clinical trials and all the other things that we do here at the Academy, which you can also find about, uh, find out about on that website. That's excellent, man. And I was really interested in, in all your work before, and now I'm, I'm engrossed. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm definitely going to, and your website for the listeners and viewers, man, your website's incredible. It is massive and there's a wealth of information on there and I'm going to dive deeper into it too, for sure. Uh, and I really look forward to talking to you again, man. I really appreciate it. Man, so, likewise, Andy. It's really been a pleasure, brother. Thanks, man. All right, everybody. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places. And remember, think for yourself, but don't always believe what you think. Till next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, pacifaria. Enough, I get the point. <laughs> you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>